Um, so the, the topic today is going to be uh, risk tools to, to qualify patients for take-home uh, naloxone. And this is my disclosure uh, slide. If anybody wants to get on that list and wants to pay me money, I'm, you know, it's cool. Um, <laughs> but I, I do want to point out, um, actually, um, like no kidding aside, on the next to the bottom uh, is remitigate. Um, and I, I, I want to just call that out because I am going to talk about something uh, that Remitigate has made, um, and I, I want to make sure that nobody thinks I'm trying to sell them anything. Uh, so I, I just want to be very, very clear on that, um, because it just it's going to probably be out next week. I just finalized some of the stuff today, which could be helpful for this. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that. But I just want to call it out, make sure you're crystal clear on that, uh, because I do own that company. Okay, so the learning objectives today, discuss health uh, professionals' role in the management of opioid overdose, describe the role of naloxone in attaining uh, death and disability from opioid overdose epidemic. Uh, describe validated method to quantify uh, or uh, to, to quantify percent risk for opioid-induced respiratory depression. Uh, we'll talk about standardized uh, procedures and that sort of thing, uh, and then we'll summarize the key points. But um, one of the major issues here is going to be documentation. I mean that that is huge, uh, and the other uh, huge issue is going to be um, how how do we decide who are going to give naloxone to. And I think one of the most important issues is that once we make that decision and we've documented everything, how do we get it to the patient if you have to get a prior auth and while they're deciding whether or not to pay for it, the patient dies? That's a problem, okay? It's a, and, it's, and it's a real problem. So I'm going to start with a question here uh, by show of hands. In 2013, the CDC identified this number of persons as dying from prescription opioids. How many say A? I'm going to say B, C, D. Okay, it is C. I may want to point out uh, that in 2014, there were 16,400 deaths from NSAID-related GI bleeds. Of course, there's no black market for NSAID, so nobody seems to care. Which of the following are unpredictable risks that could help justify in-home naloxone? Let's start, uh, so if I'm having people say A, B, C, and D. Okay, so none, none of those? Well, that, one of those is true. It's A. A is the answer. That, that is correct. And I'm going to show you an example of that. U.S. Uh, prescription opioid-related deaths, approximately 16,000 deaths in 2013 from prescription opioids, 9,000 deaths from in 2013 from heroin. According to the CDC, 85% are unintentional, which accounts for 13,600 deaths, 37 unintentional deaths per day, one unintentional death every 40 minutes, uh, and then um, children and infant deaths. Uh, this is, uh, thank God, has come down uh, a, a bit from 50, almost 5,200 in 2004. So examples of that um, would be like, um, you know, a kid maybe running around the house and stepping on a fentanyl patch, which actually did happen uh, and, and, and died. Um, but there are a number of reasons that this, that this could happen. So it's not just about the patient. It's, it's also about the people that are around that patient. And it sure as heck is not just about substance abusers. And a lot of people think that in-home naloxone is about substance abusers. In fact, a lot of community pharmacists that I've spoken about think that it's about substance abusers. It's not. It's, it's more people uh, die 
from prescription opioids that haven't prescribed for legitimate purposes. So that's very important. Utilization of healthcare resources. So over 50% of emergency department visits, uh, opioid-induced respiratory depression, um, the average length of stay, uh, if the patient is admitted, is 3.6 days. So when they're admitted to the hospital, uh, when they're in the emergency room, uh, it can be up to $8,000 for that visit or less. Uh, but when they're admitted, it's $30,000 for an average of three-day stay. And then, of course, if the patient survives uh, and they have brain damage as a result of hypoxia, uh, then they end up in a long-term care facility and it costs a fortune. So if anybody is squawking about the cost of naloxone, the cost of not having naloxone at home is a lot more, especially since most of the patients that take chronic opioids are discovered by their caregiver or loved one in the home. All right, so this, this is very preventable. So we're going to go through a case here. This was my uh, previous resident. That's, that's her picture. Um, so uh, SR is a 47-year-old female patient with three, back, uh, three failed back surgeries and type uh, 2 diabetes mellitus, 5 uh, foot 6, weighs 200 pounds. Uh, but my resident lost a whole lot of weight, so now she's 150. Um, medication regimen at pain clinic for the last two years. Uh, oxycodone ER 30 milligrams POQ12H and oxycodone IR 10 milligrams Q4HPRN. Do you think that this patient is at elevated risk, low, uh, medium, or high? So let me just review. For two years, this patient's been on the same dose of oxycodone. Do you think that this patient is at high risk? How many people say high? How many people say medium? How many people say low? There's not a right or wrong answer. How many people say low? Okay. I think a lot of people would say low because, um, you know, after all, she's been in the same dose for, for two years, right? Okay. So, um, but now you find out that uh, the medications uh, prescribed by the PCP, you say this is a pain specialty, you find out that the PCP has given this patient um, 0.5 milligrams uh, Q8H for anxiety. Oh, that's, that's a potential problem, right? And now, now what do you think? You think the risk is a little higher? Yeah, a little bit. What if the patient is placed on pregalvin 75 POTID by an endocrinologist? Think the risk is higher? Yeah, it's higher. What do you think if the patient is placed on a macrolide antibiotic because they went to an urgent care facility? What do you think now? Well, it depends on the antibiotic. I mean, it depends on the opioid and the antibiotic, but this person is on oxycodone. So if they put on a macrolide, it is a problem. Well, it would not be a problem so much with azithromycin because that doesn't affect 3A4 enzymes. But sure as heck would be a problem if it was clarithromycin or erythromycin, right? Yeah. Okay, so, um, and it also, of course, depends on the drug, but this patient's on oxycodone, which requires 3A4 metabolism to be metabolized to inactive form, and 2D6 metabolizes it to oxymorphone. So the patient decides to go on a grapefruit diet. What do you think now? Yeah, that's a bit of a problem. Uh, patient, you find out, you do a genetics test and find out the patient has an ultra-rapid 2D6 metabolizer. What do you think now? So now you're blocking 3A4. You're blocking the conversion to the, le the lesser active form. Now you've got more oxycodone that can be converted by, by 2D6 to oxymorphone. You think that's a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. Okay, the patient develops a uh, uh, URTI, um, uh, upper respiratory tract infection, all right, um, and decides to take... Uh, over-the-counter cough syrup and just choose, decide to take diphenhydramine cough syrup. Think that's a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. All right, so we got, we got all these issues, all right? And then you find out she's got obstructive sleep apnea. <laughs> so the point is, these patients go in to see a primary care doctor, and you, you just can't know all this stuff, 
You know, even if the patient tells you everything that they remember, you still can't know all this stuff. Once the patient's out the door, unless you follow them out the door with a leash, forget it. All bets are off. So, and then there's this. In God we trust, in the lockdown we trust more. So, the reason I put that up there is because this is an actual conversation from, from a pharmacist. I don't feel comfortable dispensing uh, naloxone because I feel like junkies will overdose on a deer and their buddies will reverse them. It will give them a safety net. Well, you know, there's been a couple of instances of that, but, but seriously, if, if two people want to do that and, and a million lives are saved, I don't really care. Right? I mean, that is, the, that is a stupid, stupid argument. Okay. Look, if, when it stops being fun for me, I won't be back. All right, I gotta have fun. So, um, naloxone is an antidote for a life-threatening opioid-induced respiratory depression. Obviously, it's non-scheduled. It displaces uh, opioid agonists, uh, with, with uh, one, one exception. Um, and um, uh, uh, so, I, I do want to point out that buprenorphine has a higher affinity for the mu receptor than naloxone does. So, if the patient overdoses on, on, um, on buprenorphine, which is kind of odd, but if they did, um, you're not going to be able to reverse it with, with naloxone, all right? Which kind of begs the question is, how the hell did Suboxone get on the market? Really? At low doses, there's no way that naloxone will ever reverse buprenorphine. Now, the only way you can overdose on buprenorphine is if you take higher doses. And if you take higher doses, there's no way in hell naloxone will ever see that receptor. Isn't it crazy? How do these things happen? I, I just don't know. Okay, um, so the next slide... Regulatory considerations, a Good Samaritan, Liability Protection, and Collaborative Practice Agreements. This is an, uh, some important information. So, naloxone access, this is very interesting. So, the dark green are states that um, have drug overdose and Good Samaritan laws. Good Samaritan laws means, basically, if you find a, a person and you inject naloxone into them, um, and, and something bad happens and they sue you, it's their tough luck if they survive, because, they, because you're protected by the Good Samaritan laws. Uh, the other thing it is, that, that it's useful for is that if you have a whole group of, of people that are shooting up heroin, um, what used to happen is that if somebody died, they'd throw them in the river. At least in New Jersey, that's what happened. So, um, but, but now, they, they can call 911, and whoever around is not going to get arrested because the Good Samaritan laws uh, protect them. Um, and, uh, and then the, the, uh, the, the um, kind of ugly color green there, the, the light lime green, uh, those are states that have naloxone access laws over, uh, only. Now, I want you to take this with a grain of salt, because we have politicians all over the country screaming and yelling, you know, this is, you know, this is a, a life-saving thing, and in our state, we're going to have naloxone, and blah, 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 blah. And then you have some chain pharmacies saying, oh, you know, we, we encourage naloxone, and we have collaborative prescribing agreements with our pharmacists, and, and they're, they're prescribing naloxone. Yet, I bet you, if you called up, 10 pharmacies, you'd be lucky if you found one that had naloxone on the shelf. You'd be really lucky if you found one. All right? They don't want to carry it because prior auth issues, they don't want to deal with it. Um, so it, it's, it's really all off the side. I mean, people are not really carrying naloxone in, in pharmacies. So what are the choices? And this is a short lecture today, so I, I know I'm going pretty quick. So the one on top is the, uh, the FZO injector or the naloxone auto injector. Uh, that's what it looks like. It's got a, a dummy injector. It talks to you. It tells you how to inject it. It's pretty cool. Then there's the, uh, the Narcan uh, nasal spray or naloxone uh, nasal spray. Um, and, and that one's you know, pretty self-explanatory. You spray it in the nose. This is what the injector looks like. 
Um, here's the directions on how to use the auto-inject. You pull up the top. It, it basically says, if you're ready to inject, inject. You know, you, you, you push it in the, in the thigh. It counts down 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You don't see the needle because it comes out. There's a gas chamber. It, it pops out, injects you, and gets retracted immediately. So there's no, oh, you got one right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, he's taking high-dose opioids, in case you want to know. So he's, that's good. He's got a plan in place. Um, that, that's what I like to see. All right, so this shows you uh, what actually happens. Uh, this is the nasal injector again. I mean, the nasal uh, spray, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, this aggravates the hell out of me. So this is, the, this is the naloxone kit. And yes, people have been saved with this, but now that we have FDA-approved drugs that have had usability studies, we should not be encouraging this. This is okay uh, for EMTs to carry. Uh, this is okay for people that are trained police officers because it's very inexpensive, but this is not okay to be putting in the home when we have FDA-approved drugs that have usability studies, right? Can you imagine an 83-year-old woman who was taught eight months ago how to do this, and she's panicking, and her husband has purple nail beds, and it's turning blue, trying to put this damn thing together? It is absurd, okay? Yet we have insurance companies saying, oh, well, you know, you need, you need to fail this first. Well, if you fail this first, you're dead. All right, so this is what it looks like. It's, it's, it's pretty cumbersome. Okay, importance of pharmacist intervention in, in, uh, in, in the practicing. So you know, I point this out because this is community inpatient in, in the ambulatory care. From the inpatient perspective, if a patient is on chronic opioids and they're going home, uh, the pharmacist and the physician or the provider in the hospital uh, has an obligation really to assess the patient for risk of, of opioid overdose. And, and you know, before the patient is discharged, you might want to do this while you have a captive audience uh, in, in, the, in the hospital. Um, teaching points with all forms of naloxone to patients unresponsive to get naloxone. The worst that's going to happen is they'll use up the naloxone. All right? It's a pretty safe drug. Call 911, access the patient's airway, blah, blah, blah. I think we all know how to, how to revive patients. Um, so that's good. If the patient's vomiting, roll them on their back and let them choke on their vomit. No, don't, don't, do, don't do that. Um, uh, this this uh, chart here, utilizing pharmacists to increase naloxone access, I include that um, because um, in a lot of states, uh, again, there's collaborative prescribing agreements between physicians and pharmacists. So if you're in a busy ambulatory care setting um, and you don't have the wherewithal to do this, uh, or you, you don't want to do it with all your patients, or there's, you know, maybe it requires a little bit more counseling, you can set up a collaborative prescribing agreement with your local pharmacist or pharmacy um, and have the pharmacist do it, all right? Um, and they can download notes to you or, or whatever happens to be. Now this, I kind of did away with this. I mean, I left the slide in. <laughs> the reason I left the slide in is to remind me that the hyperlink, um, yeah, hyperlink actually still, still works, but it would be crazy to copy that down. I, I include this slide to, to, to tell you that I made an Excel spreadsheet of all the states that have, um, uh, that have uh, collaborative agreements with pharmacists and, and physicians. Um, uh, the problem is that every three days I was adding three states. So I'm like, you know what, forget it. It's just not even worth it anymore. Um, this slide is a summary slide. And this goes through basically the, the, the differences between, uh, between the various uh, naloxones. And I kind of feel like it's unfair if I go to one side or the other. So um, I'm not going to do that. But um, the naloxone oil injector, just going uh, down that, that column, uh, there are usability studies for that. Uh, uh, patients that were trained and came back a week later, 90% of them got it correct. Uh, and when I say correct, they had to do everything right, 
right up into calling 911. All right, um, that's all right, so that that's with um, that's actually with no training. 90% with no with no training, and a kid comes along and picks it up, you know, and just pulls the pulls the top off and it tells you what to do. 90% with no training, 100% a week later, 100%. Um, the auto stepwise directions are, are 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 written. You can inject through the seam of the jeans. Uh, um, it's, it's, yes, it's FDA approved. The, the dose is there for you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it is uh, expensive, but it's covered on most, most insurance plans. Um, well, I say it's covered on most insurance plans, but they make you jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, the naloxone intranasal, 90% um, correct administration uh, after patients were, were, were trained, uh, written directions. Now, if we, if we move down there, the, the, the CMAX of these things are about, about the same. If you move down to FDA approved for in-home use, the auto-injector does not require training by the, by the FDA uh, insert. Uh, the intranasal naloxone uh, does require uh, training. And then the naloxone intranasal, which I put in parentheses, the, the third column over, uh, makeshift, um, uh, 60 to 100% failure. You know, so, so if you give this to a patient and you, and you have them demonstrate to you how they can do it a week later, uh, 60 to 100% of them, depending on the study, were not able to do it. And then the Loxone IM traditional, there's no usability studies at all. That's like, you know, like pulling it up out of an ampule or a vial. So who should get in-home naloxone? Well, according to these organizations, there should be dual prescribing for anybody at risk. Well, that's wonderful. Tell me who's at risk. Is it the whole world? Is it not the whole world? All right, so um, consider the cases that I presented. Uh, there's drug interactions. Uh, there's, there's, there's all kinds of potential issues. And then we've got the CDC guidelines, and they say use extra precautions when increasing to greater than 50 milligrams of morphine uh, daily equivalents. Okay? They also say avoid or carefully justify using uh, doses over 90 milligrams. So this increases our liability. Um, so um, there was a, a, a study, a, a linear regression, a multivariate analysis study done by Barb Zedler and colleagues. The first study was done in a cohort of veteran patients, almost 9,000, 10 controls assigned to each veteran. Uh, this happened over the course of two years. Now, um, basically ask questions. Do you have, does, does the patient have opioid dependence disorder or, or substance abuse disorder with opioids? That gives you 15 points. Hepatic or cirrhosis gives you nine points. So you go down here, things that you wouldn't expect. Does the patient have a diagnosis of depression? That gets you points. Schizophrenia gets you points. The things you well, then if you're an extended release opioid, uh, which you can see over here, that gives you nine points. All right, any extended release opioid. If you're on methadone, it gets you extra points. If you're on oxycodone, it gets um, extended release, that gets you extra points, and so on and so forth. Then when we get down to this area here, it's talking about morphine equivalents. All right, so that gets you points depending on how high of the dose that you're on. You total up the points, and then the number of points. Um, uh, basically is compared to percent risk. So, uh, and, and this was validated in a, in a non-veteran in the general population with almost 9 million patients, and it was almost identical. So, um, and very, very, very predictable. So if you have, you can see on the top there, number one risk class, if you are between zero and 24 points, and you go all the way over to the right, you've got a 3% risk. So if our patients have a 3% risk, you know, we, we probably will not give them naloxone. Unless, unless the patient um, is a dose creeper uh, and the patient is on drugs that are not on the reassort, like the patient's on quetiapine, the patient frequently comes in with bronchial infections and gets antibiotics. 
Um, something like that. So, so we, we may even have 3% risk given naloxone. Um, and, and there's no, you know, this is just my, my thing, kind of. But if the patient has a 14% risk or higher, they all get naloxone, all of them. All right, because I think, I think you know, three is bad enough. You know, three patients in 100 having, you know, opioid-induced respiratory depression is not a good thing. But 14 is a worse thing. Um, okay, so there's the general population that I told you about. So this is um, um, almost 19 million patients. Uh, there, was, there was, again, 10 controls for each one. Almost identical. The questions are a little bit different, uh, but the results are the same. Um, oh, my. Uh, well, this, I guess this just shows you the same thing for that. All right? And it adds up to points, 146 points. That gives you a percent risk. So it's called the RIOSORD, R-I-O-S-O-R-D, uh, the, the, um, by Barb Zedler. And it is an open access article, so you can, you can pull it out if you wanted to. You can send me an email. Now, I'm not going to go through this because everybody here knows this. Sh slower shallow breathing, you turn purple, you kick the person, they don't wake up. Pinpoint pupils are kind of stupid. Obviously, if you're on opioids, you've got pinpoint pupils. I actually had a patient come into my clinic, and she seemed pretty, pretty reasonable. She came in after a follow-up. She, she was on, had her on low-dose methadone, which she didn't want to be on. She came in on hydrocodone, and I said, no, you've got neuropathic pain. You're going on methadone. And she fought about that. She comes back a month later. Oh, no, life is good. I've been going to the gym. She comes in, you know, dressed to the nine. She looks great. I turned to my, um, I turned to my uh, student, and I said, I said, uh, did you notice anything unusual about her? This is after we left the room. And she said, yeah, she looks great. I said, do any of our patients look that good? She said, no. I said, did you notice anything else about that patient? She said, no. I said, did you look at her eyes? No. Well, go back and look at her eyes, ask her a few questions, and then come back. Her eyes look fine to me. I said, that's the thing. Her pupils are not pinpoint at all. They're, 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 they look like they were belled on in them, for God's sake. So no, she's not taking her methadone. So of course we did a blood level and a urine level, and it came back zero. So she's out of our clinic. Um, okay. So uh, why should I have naloxone now? So you qualified, uh, quantified uh, this patient and qualified them for naloxone, and then the patient says, you know, why why is this an issue now? You know, who's going to pay for it? Where should I keep it? You know, has a reassort applied to me? So it's kind of nice to have this reassort. And I mean, I actually put it in a spreadsheet. So it automatically populates, and you hand it to the patient and say, here, here are your risks. You know, like we do with cholesterol, here are your risks. Okay? So, you know, go eat three bags of potato chips and take Simbastan. No, that's not the way we should be treating people. Okay? Here are your risks. Here are the things that we can do to, to reduce these risks. You can go for cognitive behavior therapy. We can try and lower your benzo dose. Uh, we can change it to another opioid and lower the dose for cross tolerance. There are things that we can do. Here's the list of all the things. We can't change crazy. If you're schizophrenic, you're schizophrenic. So you're stuck with those points. But there are other things that we can do something about, um, and, and we, we need to work together uh, to, to do that. So why is it an issue? Well, it's an issue now because we know that people are dying, and we know that naloxone works, and there's two products on the market that are FDA-approved for in-home use. So let's, let's uh, do that. So when considering your role uh, here, you know, I kind of think of this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, this has applicability in the community, ambulatory care setting, and, and uh, institutional settings as well. So, you know, rather than going through this, this uh, summary, because I, I, I did promise I'd keep it, you know, within, within the time, but I'll, I'll stay here a little while for questions. So the reason I, I told you about this thing early on about remitigate 
And again, I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I, I think that it's, it's fair that you know about this. So a couple of years ago, um, I used to get, well, I still get them, but I would get like hundreds of emails a month about how to interpret urine screens um, and, and you know, from providers, from, from actually well-known providers. Um, I mean, like nationally known providers. It's like, you know, I have this patient, Jeff, and I, get, you know, I can't figure this out. The patient, you know, this should not be a positive urine or it should not have been negative. Or, you know, I found something that's in there. It's a, can you look at the drugs? And I get emails from, from patients because I have a, a website and they, and they track me down. And they're like, uh, my 83-year-old my uh, grandmother uh, was, was, was positive for marijuana and PCP. I don't even know what PCP is. I know what marijuana is, but I, I, sure, I sure as hell know she's not smoking pot. So, you, you know, the doctor kicked her out of the office. She's been on hydrocodone for 15 years. She can't move. She's going through withdrawal. I don't know what to do. I can't answer all these questions. So I started to write a software app that would that basically help people figure this out. It's called Urintel. And, and so I, I formed a company called Remitigate. I don't know the first thing about you know, making, making money except for being a you know, lowly pharmacist, whatever they pay us. So uh, my daughter happens to have a master's degree in branding. So she goes, well, Dad, you've got to start a company. And then, and then you've got to have brands like, you know, like, like J&J has. You know, they have all these, these drugs, and they're all owned by J&J. Like, I, I don't know. So I started the company called Remitigate. I started, uh, so I, I ended up branding this Urintel uh, thing, put it up on a web, and it, it actually dumps a very, very comprehensive note into the chart and helps you figure out what this is by just putting in the drugs and a total daily dose. So why am I telling about urine? That's a different lecture. Well, uh, because um, probably either tomorrow or early next week, another one is coming out called naloxetel. And the reason I developed this is for this very reason. Like, people don't want to do this. And if any of you heard Jen, uh, Jennifer Bowen speak, she talks about documentation. So it's not only about qualifying the patient for naloxone, it's about documenting all the things that you did, that you taught them, that they refused the naloxone, that they didn't refuse the naloxone, that they wanted the naloxone, the third-party payer wouldn't pay for it. It's about putting the onus on the insurance company, right? So what this one will do is it has the reassort built in it. You just, you just say yes, 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 the patient's crazy, schizophrenia, the patient's this, the patient's that, whatever. You just say yes. And then if you were to select, you select the drugs, it calculates out the morphine equivalent. If you were to select, select hydrocodone, for example, as one of the drugs, it would say, this patient, so like, let's say you, you selected physician. So uh, Dr. John Doe has evaluated this patient by the validated VSOR analysis for risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression. It's been determined that this patient has a 56% risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression by the validated VSOR tool. In addition, uh, this patient is prescribed hydrocodone. So this note just comes out. Uh, has been prescribed uh, hydrocodone, uh, 20 milligrams a day, uh, which, which, has, um, which is metabolized by 2D6 to, hydro, to active metabolites and by 3A4 to inactive metabolites, placing this patient at an elevated risk if they should be placed on an, an, uh, an inducer or inhibitor. Okay? Then you go down further and you say, yes, the patient should get, should get whatever. So let's say you, you select the auto-injector. You can select the, the, the intranasal, it doesn't really matter. Then it's going to give you a, a checkbox and say, well, why did you pick the auto-injector? Right? So it's going to say, well, because the patient has chronic sinusitis, or maybe the patient has seasonal allergies. You can't predict what season the patient's going to die in. If they've got seasonal allergies and they get nasal congestion, that's a problem. Or, or you could just tell the patient, make sure you don't die you know, during allergy season. So, um, or you may say, you may check, caregiver does not have the manual dexterity to, to manipulate an intranasal injector. So whatever you click there, anyway, it comes out in a progress note. 
But that's not good enough, you see, because managed care organizations really annoy me. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put it in their lap, kind of like karate. I'm going to take their strength, and I'm going to use it against them. You want a prior authorization? Be careful what you ask for, because it's going to generate a prior authorization that's going to stay on bold type on top. It has been, uh, naloxone has been deemed medically necessary for this patient. The product chosen is thus and such. It will, it will, and the reason that product was chosen for these reasons, right? And then it's going to say, this patient has 56% risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression um, by validated reassorted analysis plus an elevated risk for being on hydrocodone. This document would become part of the patient's medical record in case of accidental overdose, harm, or death. Okay? Now, you want to deny this claim? Knock yourself out. Okay? Because it's going to happen a couple of times. Somebody's going to die. Now, people have died in this prior off process, but the insurance companies have been able to squelch it and keep these things in closed records. I want to change that. See, I think that the world needs to know what's really going on. And, and if I can do that, I'm going to go out kicking. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Um, because I, I, you know, I didn't do this to, to make money. I did this because it was, in fact, <laughs> I've actually lost money. You know, it costs a lot of money to do this. But, but, but um, I did it because I think it's the, it's the right thing to do, and I think it's what we all need to be doing. The problem is you can do all the right things, and if you don't document it, it's no good. So what if you offered the patient naloxone and did this whole risk and nothing's in the chart? And it's not in the chart, you didn't do it. All right? And then you put the risk in the chart, but you failed to say in the chart, well, I, patient, I, I offered the patient naloxone, and they refused it. The person dies, and a loved one decides to sue you because, because they say, well, they didn't offer naloxone. No, you need to have a document that says that the patient refused it, and you need to have them sign a document that they refused it. All right? Because otherwise, it's your word against them. So that's why I developed the, these apps. I'm not telling you this to sell you anything. I'm telling you, I don't care whether you use my app or somebody else's app. Well, there's no other app. But, or, or if you write your own app, or you just like typing or dictating, just do it. I don't care how you do it. Just, just, just do it. So uh, that sounds like commercial. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Maybe that'll be the new tagline. So um, I'll be here for a few minutes if you have any questions. Thank you very much.